0: All right, good morning, church. We're going to go into scripture reading today. Uh, The passage is going to be Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. If you want to follow along, and there are Bibles and pews in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 1788. While you're turning there, we will also have AMA at the end of this service. So if you have any questions about what you've heard throughout the service, there will be a number somewhere on the screen that I have not memorized, and you can just text your question to that number. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever, amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Becca. Hey, everyone. If you haven't been here, we're doing a series um, where we're finishing the book of Philippians in the Bible. It's like four pages there in the back if you looked it up. And we're also, because it's chapter four talks about the local church, we're talking about our local church and like what we feel like we're called to be. And so I can see the excitement on your faces because we're going to talk about things like giving and generosity. Yay. Um, okay. The, I, I think that the worship team did a really good job this morning laying out the gospel. The word gospel, if you're not familiar with it, is, is a translation word that means good news. The good news is that um, though we are made for glory and made to be the very instantiation of the presence of God in his physical creation, we sinned and broke our relationship with him. We're worse than we've ever dared dream, and we're more valuable and important to God than we'd ever dared hoped. And because God is gracious and generous— He chose to not just act in Christ in a way that could forgive our sins, but that could reverse the harms that we have done unto the ultimate good that He intended in the first place and beyond. Such that, because of the death of Jesus the Christ, our debt of sin can be paid by someone other than ourselves so that we can be made free of it, forgiven for it, reconciled to God, have the basis to be reconciled with each other, to be brought into a new family, to be sons and daughters of God Almighty, to receive the miracle of regeneration, to have the heart of stone of sin and flesh be taken out to be given a heart of flesh that can feel the things of God and what is good and right and true and to love them deeply from the heart and in so doing we can take hold of our good purpose that we were ultimately given unto an ultimate glory that God will recreate and in which we will participate. That is offered freely at Christ's expense to us who are but beggars in its face. That is the good news. You can exchange every loss, every brokenness, every guilt in the death and resurrection of the Son of God for your ultimate salvation. And it's free. It is from the gift of the generosity of God himself. You can receive it right now. If you haven't ever turned to God and acknowledged your sin and asked to simply receive his gift by simply believing— that's all that is done because everything else is freely given. And that God has always been like that. 700 years before Jesus came, when God was speaking about the time of this Messiah that would come, he said, listen, all of you who are thirsty, come and drink. And everybody who's hungry, come and eat. I will give you the greatest wine and the best food. It was never to him just about you being evil and him forgiving you so you didn't have to go to hell, it was always to heal you into his full son and daughters to become the maximum of what you were ever created to be for a destiny that you couldn't dare even imagine if you let your imagination dream. Do you understand? It is given freely and for us to receive and to revel in and to live in. And as the apostle uses the word many times in this book, rejoice. So then what are the followers of such a God like? What are the believers in such a God like? What are the sons and daughters of such a father like? You see see where I'm going here, right? Um, One of the things that the apostle says in this passage a couple of times is he talks about concern. He said, listen, you guys have been concerned for me. One One of the greatest fears for most human beings on planet Earth, it's very intense when you're like two or three days old, it's also pretty intense when you're, like, in junior high. And it really, like, is with you your whole life, is the concern that nobody's going to be concerned about you. <laughs> is anybody going to take care of you? Is anybody going to be there for you? Is anybody going to be part of your life? Is anybody going to—are you going to matter to anybody? If you disappeared, would anybody notice you were gone? Like, what, like, do you matter? Does anybody care? Is there any concern directed at you? And why should there be? I mean, Psalm 8 says, right? God, what is mankind that you're mindful of us? You make, you make all the plans. I remember having a history professor in college where the first lecture, he did a bunch of math on the expansiveness of the universe. And he was like, look, it's like this, this so big. you like, some of you came in here thinking God cares about you. You got to get over that juvenile idea. It's something this big. The idea that God cares about you, this tiny little speck in the expansive history, and the expanse of the universe, it's crazy. Right? I'm like, yeah, there's only, only one thing in that whole universe that seems to have life on it. I mean maybe there are some areas more specific of his concern than others. And maybe God's mind is so large that throughout all of time and all of space he could care about every atom. Maybe you didn't read the Bible before you attacked the God of it. Right? Right? Because other people have looked at the expanse and done all that same math and said, God is amazing! They came to the complete opposite. It's like when the astronauts from America and the USSR went into space and, and they one from the USSR. I went into space and I saw no God there. And the American astronaut went up and they, he, he read the first verses of Genesis as a response to seeing space. Like what? Mm. <laughs> the generosity of God is not just you can have your sins forgiven. It starts with concern that the eye of God is on you. Right? Now, if you believe that, it's still terrifying. But it's also the case, right? There's this place, right? How does the whole story of redemption start when you get to the book of Exodus, right? Like, like Moses is, has run from his responsibilities in Egypt. He's run from his people. He was in a place where he could have made a difference, and he murdered somebody, and then he left, right? And God says—what does he say to Moses? He says, I have heard the cry of my people. I am what? Concerned about them. Now you Go right? The whole story starts with God's concern, right? And if we receive the concern of God by believing the gospel, what happens is that concern doesn't just come into us, but it flows through us, and it comes out of us, and we start to be concerned about God's concerns, right? And one of the reasons why Paul talks about this in chapter four is because he wants the Philippians to see that when he sees the concern of God in them, it makes him happy. Like twelve times, maybe I can't remember the exact number. I felt right my head right now, but in the book of Philippians, Paul said he rejoices over this. He rejoices over that, and let's all rejoice. I rejoice at this. This is the one place where he says I rejoice greatly. Why is the thing that he's the most happy about that the Philippians sent him money? Because they did. That's what he's responding to here. He says, you know, you understand. It's not because I needed it. I didn't rejoice because I needed fifty dollars and I got it, right? I rejoice because you're you, the physical gift of the money you sent me is a symbol of something. It's a symbol of your concern. You had that money to be concerned about yourself with, to spend on yourself. And instead of being concerned about yourself, you were more concerned about me. And the way I know you were more concerned about me is because you sent it to me. And he said, so when I received it as your f- spiritual father in the faith, I rejoiced not because I actually needed the money, but because it told me something about how you're doing spiritually right? And so one way to say this is, is that for us in the present is generosity is the fruit of the concern of Christ, right? If you, if you have taken in, in faith, the concern of Jesus for you, Jesus is concerned for you, right? And if you take that in, in faith, and you believe in him, and you belong to Jesus, and you're his disciple, right, then that concern is going to come out of you. And one of the ways you know you've received Christ, and one of the ways I know and the people around you know you've received Christ, is that the concern of Christ that comes into you is coming out of you. Right? Now, I want to talk about just—I'm going to talk about three um, fruits of that that are in this passage, and then I'm going to talk about some ways I think we are, and I want to do this as the church at High Point Church as concretely as possible. The first is is that contentment um, is is the fruit, right? One of the fruits of understanding the concern of Jesus for us is contentment. That is, that that the leaky flesh is sealed with peace, right? A couple verses before this, Paul says, all these anxieties that you have, right, don't submit to them, but take them to God in a certain kind of prayer. I talked about that like two or three weeks ago in a sermon. You can listen to that if you haven't heard it. He says, and then your heart and your mind will be guarded by the peace of God. That is, something, something happens to us where The concern of Christ comes to us and resolves something in us so that we become actually content. Right? So this is the way he says it. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. Right? So we're all in circumstances of various kinds. And um, the question is, in those circumstances and all the concerns that could come from them from below, so to speak, how do you feel? What is your inner life like, right? You see, because the, the person without the sealing, contentment-creating work of Christ through his concern for us, we just tend to be really leaky vessels, and we get really concerned because we see the water of our feelings about ourselves, our sense of security personally, just leaking out, and we can see that. And so it turns our concerns toward ourselves, right? Scripture talks about this in terms of, like, the flesh— and the devil in the world, right? So there's, we have a neediness. That's the flesh, right? It's a sinful neediness. We're focused on ourselves and we're willing to do things that are wrong and unjust to take care of the neediness in ourselves. We reach out to a world that is willing to give us, not on the basis of God, but on what we can take from it. That's the world. And then there are devils who are like, yeah, you should do that. Let me me give you some creative help and self-justification in doing it. And so in our leakiness, we reach out to get whatever water we can to keep filling it and filling it and filling it. And you're like, Nick, why are you making this like whirly analogy? And it's literally in the book of Jeremiah chapter two. It says, my people are like leaky cisterns and I'm like a stream of living water and they keep trying to catch rainwater to fill these cisterns to get through the dry season of the difficulty of their life instead of coming to me the spring of living water. so, One of the ways to think about this is, is that there is a way in which God fills, but contentment is a way that he also kind of seals the leaks. We don't, we don't need as much. Like in chapter one, we realize that like we're gonna be resurrected with Christ. To live as Christ and to die is gain. I can be in a prison and I can see the purpose of God in my life. I don't have to even be physically free to be free. And I, whether I'm exalted or people treat me with respect, Well, I belong to Jesus. I'm the son of the king. Like, fine. But if, like, I'm treated like less than a slave, Jesus, who was by the very nature God, took on the very nature of a servant and died the death of the cross. So I can, in myself, put away my vanity and I can really seek to treat other people better than myself. Not because they are better than myself, but because Jesus will do it. I can do it too. His concerns are my concerns. But you see, that comes from a sense of peace, which he then, like, expounds in chapter three when he says, I'm in my union with Christ. I don't have to earn my own righteousness anymore, even. I've received a righteousness from Christ. that's by faith. Right? And, and also because of that, I'm with Christ in his suffering and his, and his dying and in his rising from the dead. Like, I'm with Christ. I don't need all this stuff. And I don't need to justify myself. And I don't have to be wealthy. And I don't have to have an exotic vacation to feel like I had a good year. I just don't need any of it. I'm not leaking as bad. And so because of it, I don't need your concern, right? Now, here's the interesting thing about it, because there's a version of me that would have read that when I was 20, and I would have said, you see, that's exactly what I want to be like. Nobody has to love me. Nobody has to care about me. If I believe in Jesus enough, and I'm strong enough, I can be content in myself and with Jesus, and I don't need anybody. Right? Sounds really emotionally healthy to you? right? But notice how he starts the line. He says, I rejoice that you've renewed your concern for me. Do you see how open Paul's heart is also to be loved? His heart is really open to be loved, too. He's not emotionally needy out of his anxiety, but as a human being, he also recognizes the, the inherent good of receiving the concern of Christ from other people dear to him, and so he can receive love and give love, but not out of anxiety, but out of actually a non-leaky contentment, right? And he says, listen, the alternative is really true if you don't receive the concern of Christ and put your faith in him in that way. He said, listen, he's like, I've told you often, it's that time of year where the sun is, we should rejoice that the sun is rising in the sky yeah. and putting weird flashes on our screens, right? For I've been told before, and now I say even with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. What produces such a depraved existence? What puts people in a frame of mind that they would grow into that shape emotionally and spiritually and mentally? And he says, their mind is on earthly things. That's the same word. Mind and concern, same word in Greek. Their concerns are on earthly things. Because their concerns are on earthly things, this is what happens to the rest of them. Their destiny is in their destruction because their citizenship is not in heaven. Their mind isn't on things above. Their, their mind's on things of this earth, right? And because of that, their God is their stomach. Whatever they think will please them, whatever they feel needy about, they just go and take. But if you do that, you express yourself authentically like that. What that normally means is that you express yourself against the good of other people because you need to get what you want. And so you really are living to the idol or the God of your stomach or like whatever you believe you need. And so therefore—and then you justify yourself in doing it because you're not going to feel like a bad person. You're going to say that, like, you're more authentic than anybody else or you're more honest with yourself than anybody else or you don't live according to the rules or the scripts of the culture. And so your glory, that is how you boast about how you're a good person, is actually rooted in the thing that you should be most ashamed of. And the reason why those things happen is because ultimately, at your core, you're leaky. You have not experienced the contentment of Christ, and so you need, you need, you need, right? The leech has two daughters. The Proverbs say, give, give, they cry. It's never enough. I'm gonna keep moving. There's, I could say a bunch of things about terracotta that would not illustrate it much better, okay? (laughs) The second is, is that it's sharing. The second result of the concern of Christ entering us is sharing. We freely give what we freely received, Jesus says this in Matthew. He says, He says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received. now freely give. You see, this, there's this idea that just as the concern of Christ comes to us, we receive Christ's concern for us and we respond in faith and receive salvation. His concern then goes through us. He's like, look, I'm interested. The same reason I'm interested in you, I'm interested in a lot of other things. And now that you're my son or your da- my daughter, you're part of this family. And now we look to the things that are important. Here's what I care about. Right? And so our, our hearts move towards that stuff. But then we realize that we have resources in Christ. And we, now, we, now we recognize again what they're for. The reason you were made in the image of God was to do the acts that matter to God. That's the purpose of your life. That's why you have health and breath and strength and resources and skills and intelligence and blood flowing in your veins. That's why you have life. To do that which God is concerned about and to unite your heart in your own concern for those concerns. And when you do that, not only will you see those concerns, but out of contentment, when he pours into you, you're not leaking, and you, pour, you can pour it out. You can share. You can give, right? Paul says twice here, right? He says, it was good for you to share in my troubles, right? When I first left, I set out for Macedonia, and not one church shared with me in the matters of giving and receiving. Only you. You sent me aid more than once when I was in need. You see, aid, giving, and receiving— but ultimately, the context is sharing. I just read that. Um, there's a reason why it was only the Philippian church that gave. I don't know if you understand this, right? Um, to tell people as a religious speaker person to give money is, is, is dangerous, right? There might be some of you who are in the room today who aren't believers, or you're like pretty early on in, in faith, or somebody might watch this on the internet and be like, oh, here, here he goes, you know, right? You should know, if you want, I get a salary, you could give 10 million dollars today. I wouldn't receive a single penny more in pay, okay? But th- the apostle Paul realized that there was a danger, because in the ancient world, there were lots of people that were talkers for a living. They went around, and they would do speeches or whatever, and then people would give money. It was kind of like going to a renaissance festival. Um, and it made people kind of cynical, you know? Especially if you're, what you're offering them is an immaterial good. Right? Like, if I make you something, like, out of metal, and I'm like, here, give me $50, like, you are getting a physical thing. You know you're—you you think you know you're not getting ripped off. Right? And so if the Apostle Paul comes, and he preaches the gospel to people, and they come, and he's like, listen, God will give you this salvation for free. It's so amazing. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's so great. And then he's like, okay, now listen, all you have to do is give $2,000 right now. Do you see the problem there? There's two problems. One is, some people are going to be like, look, I've been taken advantage of before. It's a fallen world, buddy. Like, they're—like, you know, I, I see what's going on here. Right? Cynicism. But there's also idleness, which is, wait, whoa, you could make a living going around just talking like that? Just delivering this gospel, which anybody could learn in about 20 minutes? Like, yeah, that Paul guy has like a PhD or something, but like, this is not stoicism. Like, like this, is, this is not like reciting Plato. I mean, this is, I mean, Paul said he preaches the God, preached the gospel in simplicity and foolishness, meaning it wasn't that complicated. And people are like, listen, if you can make a living doing this, this looks fantastic. Right? <laughs> Like, if you're going to lay bricks or, like, talk for a living, you know, why not talk? And you see, when—one of the reasons when he says, look, even when I was in Thessalonica, you guys sent me money again and again, right? If you read the two epistles to the Thessalonians, he explicitly talks about how he never took their money and couldn't. Because he knew in that context that if he asked for money, if he let them give him money, those two things would happen. So in First Thessalonians, he said, look, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't take any of your money. In, fa- in fact, if you, you decide to be a missionary and you go to another country today and you, you get a job in that country to pay for yourself, to share the gospel, in, in churches like ours, we call that tent-making missions. Tent-making. Why tent-making? That sounds weird, right? They don't usually make tents. You realize. The reason is because that's what Paul did. When he went to places like Thessalonica, and he knew he couldn't ask for money because it would create cynicism or idleness, he would work most of the day sewing awnings and tents to pay for his food and his lodging, so that he could say in First Thessalonians, "I didn't take any money's money, I didn't eat anybody's food. You yourselves know, right?" And then in Second Thessalonians, he said, "The reason we did this is so that you wouldn't learn to be idle. I told you when I was among you that if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat." You see, because in the early stages of faith, people can't distinguish these things very well. They're not filled with the concern of Christ. They don't have the contentment that comes from Christ. And so it doesn't evoke a desire to share. And so when somebody says, hey, you should give whatever you can. You should give sacrificially and generously. These are the two things it evokes. That's why Jill said when she did the offering, she said, if Jesus is your Lord and this is your local church, then give. Right? She said whether it's a penny or a $1,000. She should have said a penny or $50 million, but we'll work on her pitches later. <laughs> right? But the point is, is that the thing that was different about the Philippian church is they understood that. Their faith was deep enough that recognizing the ability to share, because you're concerned about the people of God and the things of Christ and His mission and His concerns, and that flows out of you, and you're just at, you're waiting to be asked. That when he's like, why don't you give some money? They're like, okay. In fact, it doesn't even sound like he asked for this money. They just found out that he was like in prison in Rome. And they're like, well, we should send Paul some money. And they got a bunch of money and sent one of the people from their church to give it to him personally. Because they didn't even need to be asked. And in the beginning, when he didn't ask anybody, he was leaving Macedonia, all the churches he'd planted, including the Brians who studied the Bible really carefully, and the Thessalonians who were like some kind of hot shots, you know, The Philippian church was the only one who got it enough that we're going to send money with him whether you ask for it or not, because we get it, right? And so, man, I want to be that kind of church. And I'll say in a minute, come into that, I think, I think that we are, but like the apostle says in another place on giving, do so more and more, right? The third is receiving, which is the concern of Christ doesn't just end with our salvation. It continues, and God doesn't just give first, he gives last. Um, I had a conversation with somebody this week who he's like, you know, I think God might be like calling me to himself. I just, I feel like I'm not a Christian yet, but like there's these things happening and I just, I feel like God might be after me. I'm like, listen, God always gives first. Nobody comes to God and then God comes to them. He goes and searches for them and draws them. Jesus says in the gospels, nobody believes unless I draw them, right? So God always gives first, but he also, you guys, he always gives last. Always. You can see this in this passage where Paul talks about the gift. And he's like, listen, he said, you know, I'm I'm not really after a gift. I didn't even ask for a gift. But he said, what I am interested in is crediting to your account. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm glad to do you this favor by taking your money. (laughs) Because what Paul knows is that when we give to the poor or when we give to gospel work, anytime we're giving to the concerns of Jesus, right, we are giving to God the only way you can give to the, like, all-sufficient one, under the curse. It creates this strange opportunity where you can actually give to God where God, in some sense, lacks. Right? You can actually give something that. Like, well, thank you for that. And when we give to the gospel redemptive work, or when we give to the poor, Scripture says we're giving to the heart of his concern. Think about John, or not John, Matthew 25, the, the sheep and the goat story. You get to the sheep and the end of it, and, and God is judging, and he says, listen, whatever you did to one of the very least of these, whether it's believers in prison or the poor who have nothing, he says, you did it to me. That's how he shares his concern. Like, I identify personally with those people. Christians in persecution, people in poverty or in sickness or traveling. He's like, people who are, in those sense, the least. I am those people. That is, I'm concerned about them. And when you give to them, you did it to me, Right? And then when the apostle Paul, when he was Saul the Pharisee, and not a Christian yet, was trying to destroy the people of God in the gospel going forward, and Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus and knocks him off his horse and strikes him blind, and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus identifies with his church because they're his children, his people, his blood-bought ones. It says in Acts 20 when Saul becomes an apostle and leads the church, later on he says, listen, You shepherd carefully the church of God. He's talking to the elders at Ephesus, who Jesus bought with his own blood. Talk about concern, right? Jesus says, you're not persecuting the church or the people of the way or this heretical group of Jews. You're persecuting me. They are the object of my concern. And so when we give, we're giving to God and he doesn't just give first, he gives last. It's credited to our account right? The second thing is is that like Paul's like, look, you did just a good. You gave—Jesus cares about me. When you thought we should give to Paul because Jesus cares about him, you were right. I didn't need your gift. I wasn't like, man, I hope the Philippians get it. But Jesus was looking at me in this prison without. And though I've learned to not be leaky in my contentment in him, I know what it's like to be happy and want. But now I am in plenty because Jesus was concerned about me, and you gave. And so you acted in the will of God. You get to take pleasure in the fact that you did something that pleases God, which is the third thing. He says your offering is fragrant to God, right? He's likening it to an Old Testament offering where this sacrificial gift is given, which financially cost the person who gave it, and the smoke that rose up was supposed to signify that a sacrificial gift towards God and his concern and purposes produced an aroma to the heavens that he enjoyed, right? That's a metaphor, obviously. There's only two places in the book of Philippians where Paul likens something that we do to a sacrifice. The first is his likely death in the Philippians' personal persecuted sufferings. He says, listen, even if I'm like a drink offering being poured out on the sacrifice and service in your faith, I rejoice. So he's saying, if the Romans behead me and the blood pours out of my neck like pouring a pitcher of wine, I picture it spiritually as you being God's sacrifice on the altar like the broken and cut up lamb that's being burned and then the fellowship offering or the drink offering was poured onto that and the two mingled together as they burned up to God in this beautiful sacrifice of praise to him and he said, I think of my death as contributing to your sufferings and that together producing this aroma to God of our devotion to him and his concern of us both witnessing and being testifiers of the truth even to those who might now hate it. Maybe they'll turn, right? Right? Since that is a beautiful thing to God. And then here, your concern for me and my concern for you, that in the gospel and in Christ, in whatever circumstances we're in, that we love each other enough that you wanted to share, you wanted to give, and that I can receive, and that together we belong. He said, that's like a sacrifice burning up an aroma to God. He smells it like a perfume. It's beautiful to him. Right? And then the last thing he says is, he says, listen, my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches Of the glory of Christ Jesus, right? Now, I want you to understand what he does not say. He does not say, my God will make you rich in proportion to the riches of Christ Jesus. No, that's not what he says. And there's a reason why that's not the case, okay? And I'm going to say something, and this might hurt your feelings, okay? If I haven't hurt your feelings already, you're supposed to get at least one for your money at High Point every week, okay? (laughs) If God, if we were all faithful to God, and in blessing, God made us all physically rich, Okay? probably two-thirds of us would go to hell. Okay? Because the Bible teaches that though money is an inherent good, it is one of the most corrupting realities that there is because it can function like a god. Because it's liquid, you can use it for anything. And if you really are a pretty leaky vessel still, and now you have access to all the things the world offers because you can just buy them, the corrupting power of that on you is profound. It's very, very, very difficult for ample finances not to corrupt us. So be very careful about how you want to be blessed. Scripture teaches, right? But it's also partly because the gift he's giving us is contentment in Christ. If that contentment is sealing up the leaks, and if we pour out and sharing what we have anyway, what does it really matter how much you get? You're just going to splash somebody with it. You understand? Like, it's not an issue. And if you are really adoring Christ, and if you love his brothers and sisters in the body, and if you can see the purpose of God right in front of you to relish in the things that you do day in and day out, if you can, if you can love all those things that we were meant to love, it, your income will be almost irrelevant. And it turns out, all of your needs may be in what other people would consider profound want. Because if you can be content in any and every circumstance, Jesus can take care of all of your needs very leanly. Does that make sense? But he does say God gives last, and he does include giving in this life, right? Peter said, right, like about— Jesus said something about rich men we won't get into right now. Peter's like, look, we left everything for you. We have left everything. And Jesus says, you won't fail to receive a hundred times back of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in this life and in the world to come eternal life. And so there is a way in which God pays us back. He gives to us in this life. But in the context of the scripture, it's almost never financial. Partly because—listen, and I want you to listen to this, okay? Some of you are going to think this is a religious cop-out, and you're wrong. You just don't get it yet. You're not matured up, and that's fine. But don't be real confident in your dismissal of it. Money is the least valuable thing he could give us in blessing. Don't you get it? Like, he could give us money, and he will give you money. I'm, I'm, I'm sure some of God's blessing for some of us in this room will include money, okay? But, Don't you see that in his economy, based on his concerns, based on the contentment that he gives, money's like the least valuable thing. Right? And so therefore, that's not what he gives even in blessing in this life mostly. If he gives you a good friend, it's millions. He's given you millions of dollars worth of good, but only if your heart is changed by his concern and contentment so that you can receive the good and actually see it as good and taste it as good and revel in as good and rejoice greatly just that another person is concerned with your living and suffering and hoping. Right, okay. I gotta keep moving here, I only have a few minutes, and we gotta get to the end. Okay. So the reward is proportional. Read those verses. <laughs> I'm not gonna get into that right now. Okay. Five things about high point church. One, we are generous. We are going to be a generous church. We are not going to be a matching church or a taking church. Okay, listen. There are a lot of people in this world who think that they're smart because they can cheat the system. And listen, I'm not just talking about poor people. You're like, you're beat up on poor people. No, I'm not. There are people in every class of people who are takers. There are poor people who are takers. There are middle-class people whose jobs really are them moving papers around and they're not really producing much value for anyone, but they got themselves a little shtick and they defend it very carefully in their little bureaucracy, and they're like, I'm going to get my little six figures, right? And those people are takers. And there are wealthy people who are not investing in such a way as to produce good while as to produce surplus in the working of that economy, but they are like becoming rent seekers and owning things and keeping other people from owning things so that they have to give to those people. Think Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life. But, there, but it's not just takers. There's some of us who will be like, oh, I don't, I'm not a taker. Okay, but you're a matcher, which is you're giving and receiving. is political, right? If you give on a level of five, I'll give to you on a level of five. Right? There are some of you that like, if I, if I say, listen, my wife and I are going to give $3,000 to this thing we're doing, and you'll be like, okay, well, I'm next going to give. so, And like the reason pastors do that is because most of the people in churches aren't givers. They're matchers. So if I can like, make you know that everybody in the church is going to give a gift, right? That's why you do campaigns, right? Then you're like, well, if they're going to give and they're going to give and they're going to give, and then you get like some real generous people in your church to say what they're going to give. Well, you know, you know, Sarah and I are going to give this much, and then people are like, oh, I guess if Sarah's going to give that much, then we should do something, right? And so then like what happens is all these Christians that are really supposed to be generous who are really just matchers, because they don't want to feel guilty, they give their match, recognizing that they're going to get paid back with a certain kind of value, right? We're not We're not supposed to be matchers. We're supposed to be givers from the heart, because in the contentment of Jesus, we're sealed up, and whatever He pours in, we can splash out, and that's our life. We're happy to do it. We're looking for opportunities to do it. We want to do it. And friends, listen, I feel like this church is. There's so many of you who are like that in this church. Um, almost every pastor I know during COVID, they were like, "How am I going to pay the bills? And are we going to have to close the church?" And I always tell the story. I was like, listen, we just decided to cap it. We cut some expenses. We capped our budget. And then I just told the church, whatever you give over this amount of money, we will give away. And our giving has never gone up faster than when we said that. Now, it's partly because most of you all work at computers and you still had your jobs during COVID and you felt terrible for people who didn't. But that's good because you are concerned about other people. That's not bad, right? And and good for you for having a job that will hurt your back. But like, (laughs) and your eyes and your, and I'm And your, (laughs) Anyway. <laughs> I do too. I'm like this all day. Okay. But the, the point, do you see the point? The point is that um, I was so proud of that. And I still am proud of this church because when I say, hey, let's be concerned about this thing, people go, yeah, and they give, right? And I think that that's really exciting. And I want to see us do it more and more. I want to see us keep thinking about the concerns of Jesus, right? I'll get into that in just a second. But here's what, I want to say this too. Some of you are at High Point Church, and you love hearing stories like that, but you actually aren't really personally participating in the generosity. You love hearing it, but you aren't really sacrificially giving to be part of it. And I'm not telling you that you have to. I'm just telling you stop taking pleasure in it if you're not part of it. Because it's dishonest for you. It's bad for you. I don't need your money. God doesn't need your money. This church doesn't need your money, okay? We'll do you a favor by receiving your gift. But if you're not participating, don't allow yourself to say, oh, I was part of that. That's so great, because you weren't part of it. And then just think about what you want to be and where you want to be. But listen, and it's okay if you're not in a generous place right now. And some of you are like, look, I, I just don't have any money. That's fine. Generosity is not just financial giving. It's any way the concern of Christ comes out of us where we use anything that we have in our humanity for the good of others to bring about a resolution of God's concerns. That can be time. It can be skills. It can be just listening to people. It can just be saying a statement of encouragement. It can be not yelling at a kid who's being annoying in the kid's hallway. Like there's a lot of ways to do it. Let me give you one simple way, right? Our church is getting full at first service. It's not full at second service. You could serve like 700 people if you're able to come to church at second service. For some of you, that would be kind of a generous sacrifice because you'd rather come first service, especially during the summer, you know? But it would really help us reach more people if some of you went to second service. Like, you don't have to give another penny to serve and to give in that way, right? Okay, next thing. I gotta go quick because I only gotta come next here. Okay, two. Uh, we need to be a church that's passionately disinterested that is we give to the concerns of Christ not our own when i was in seminary my my seminary professor said in the book of job what we see is the presence of disinterested devotion to god and i said professor sir isn't that an oxymoron what is disinterested passion i don't think my wife wants that <laughs> and he said you don't know what the word means the word disinterested doesn't mean you're not interested Disinterested means you don't put your interests in front of other people's interests. If there are four of us and somebody gives us a chocolate chip cookie and I'm supposed to divide it, the disinterested way to divide it is to divide it perfectly in 25% fourths rather than to try to get myself 35%. Right? Now think about this. If we are a church that for whatever reason, we have fairly educated people, oftentimes people who are— like we very rarely give benevolence money to people in our own church, for example. Right? We're mostly surplus people who at least pretend to have our lives together, right? Yet we still need to start a healing ministry. So are we being honest with ourselves, okay? So where, where does the surplus go? Like if we, right, and do we say, well, High Point Church needs new carpet. So that's where it goes. Or we go, if Jesus is the commanding officer of the church, he is the head of the body of Christ, and he sees the whole city and the whole world, and every dollar that we give at High Point Church is his money, then what's the question we ask ourselves? Do we ask yourself, what would make High Point Church nicer? It's not actually the question we ask. The question we ask is, commanding officer Jesus, where do you want this money to go? Which is why we still have this carpet, and the faith place owns their own building. Because yeah. that $90,000 would have been a great start on our carpet. We just got the bids in this last week. <sighs> <laughs> 550 to dollars to thousand dollars Okay. It, like, just about broke my soul because we're within a year of paying off our mortgage. And I was like, we're going to be, like, a mortgage-free church. And it's like, no, you're not. Not really. But we're going to do some stuff for the next generation because we're going to be generous with the four-year-olds so that when we're in, they're in our shoes, we took care of a bunch of this stuff for them. You know what I mean? Because it's not about us, right? And so, like, some of these decisions we make, the, like the $15,000 we gave to the, to the food pantry and the ministry um, of End Times Ministry, we're, we're helping them save for the down payment so they can own their own building. Right? Instead of doing stuff around here. Like, I don't know if you've seen the cracks in the paint over here that I alerted some of our staff to. Like, we're not—we we could just hire another grounds person get all that nice cleaned up, right? And, like, listen, my mom's an immigrant. None of that stuff matters to me. I know it has to matter to me, okay? My wife picked out my outfit, so I have a clean shirt on. But <laughs> we also need to recognize that part of this really is we need to think, what does Jesus want? Not what would—we nice for high point. I don't, like— I've got other examples of this that I don't have time for, but I need to finish in less than a minute. Um, We're investing. You need to think of our giving and your giving. High Point Church is a capital investment firm for heaven. Right? We're investing. Right? Which means we need to be careful about what we give money to, and also we need to realize that the only way you can make an investment in your eternal future is by giving. Right? The last is, is that giving to Christ's concerns is worship. Right? Listen, um, the energy you expended to sing three worship songs so far is worth about as much as the energy and sacrifice as it took to expend those three worship songs out of your lungs. This is one of the reasons why I I really struggle about not passing the plate, because I want people to realize That one of the greatest, most profound acts of worship is the giving of their finances. And especially, I want men to personally connect to that because a lot of them don't like singing, and they need to realize that when they financially give, they were giving all those hammer swings and all that stuff that they did to provide for their family, and the portion they took out to give to the ministry of God is their manly gift. Now that's also true of women and their womanly gifts, but men, I think, need to emotionally connect to that more deeply to recognize their participation in worship. And lastly, is sacrificial giving builds our faith, hope, and love. Right? The point of giving is not just so that other things can get done, but that when you participate in the concerns of Jesus, what that means is that you are personally giving away money that gives you a feeling of security to put your trust in God, faith. You are taking, putting aside concerns for yourself and giving to the concerns of others. That's love. And by investing with God rather than buying more crap for yourself. You are putting your hope in things above, not the things on this earth, so that our God is not our stomach, and we can live as though we're citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Okay, Lord, you know I have more to say, and people didn't have more to hear, and um, we know that the subject is really close to your heart. You're a giving God, and we want to be as generous as Jesus, and we have no idea what that means or what that costs. And we pray that you would make us a people that are very industrious, that we're not idle, and that that would produce wealth. And in our contentment, we would turn off the spigots of our personal spending in certain areas so that we can give generously and give your goodness to other people. And I pray that in that contentment and in that personal discipline, that you would make us generous so the accumulation of our wealth doesn't destroy our hearts, but instead the generosity that you help us participate in would cause us to grow in faith. And I pray that you'd give us the heart that we look on the things we give to and the people that we give to and our attitude towards them would be, I'll never be able to repay you for what you're doing for me. Because we know that what we give to them, you're crediting to our account. And we know that if we, we sow generously, we're gonna reap generously. And you, you will give us very little that is so inconsequential and worthless as money. But your blessings are, are, are the, of the greatest value. We pray that you'd help us to be people who walk in it And that the people who led us to Christ or preached the gospel to us, because of our giving, they would say they greatly rejoice because of the evidence of what's been done in us. In Jesus' name, amen.